If you want to learn how to short a stock, how hedge funds work, and even how to start your own hedge fund while you're still in school, this is the episode for you. Today, we're talking with two current seniors at Brown University who are able to start their own long short equity hedge fund, a student run fund at Brown using Brown's endowment as funding. Welcome to the Breaking Into Finance podcast. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody. Uh, super excited to have a really special episode here. Two guests today. We have Ian Becker and Ben Picars, who are both... Are you both seniors at Brown? We are. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, well, then maybe I guess I'd love to... I'll turn it over to you guys. If you could just introduce yourself really briefly, maybe talk a little bit about what you're studying, and then if you have plans for next year, maybe what, what that is. Sure, I mean, yeah. So, awesome. Yeah, my name's Ian. I'm originally from Washington, D.C., and I'm a senior at Brown studying economics and decision sciences. Um, along with Ben, I'm a former co-president of the Brown Investment Group and a co-founder of the Long Short Fund. And my sophomore summer, started working at a um, real estate PE shop that really got me interested in private markets. And my junior summer, I interned at a large growth equity, private equity shop focusing on software. And that's where I'll be returning for full time. I'm also a senior at Brown studying computer science and international and public affairs. It's a little bit of a, a mouthful. And I started personal investing and, and trading right around the start of, of, of COVID. And I got into options and, and futures and I, sort of turned that into a passion for working under the, the Brown Investment Group first year at Brown. And as a college student, my mission was always kind of get experience in as many different fields as possible um, because this is really the only chance I'll have in life to be able to do that with no sort of repercussions and, and no sort of falling behind. So I've, I've interned in tech uh, at a cybersecurity startup in, in Tel Aviv. I've inter interned in financial services I've done a good amount of work in, in venture capital and growth equity as well. And I've, I've also gotten involved with the student-run venture fund at Brown, which I also uh, co-lead today, but that's a whole other matter. Um, and ultimately, I, I learned that what I like is being involved in, in technology and sort of continuing on that computer science pathway, but also working on sort of fast-paced deals and getting the bigger picture perspective that you get from finance. And so... I'm also going to be going to work at a, a growth equity, private equity, software investing shop uh, out of college and hoping it'll sort of give me the best of, of both worlds. Terrific. Terrific. Uh, which which fund out of curiosity? Inside Partners. Nice. Both of yeah, us, actually. That's a, that's a popular, it's a popular one. It's a popular one. And great. So I, the, the reason, you know, for, for listeners, I, I came across you guys because Ian posted on LinkedIn about you guys having kind of co-founded this long, short strategy at Brown, where you got, you know, Brown University to agree to give you guys a little bit of the endowment for your own long, short uh, equity fund. And the first question is first, you know, why, why do this? So Brown already has a student investment committee, uh, you already have a student investment fund for long only, I guess first, you know, can you talk, maybe Ben, we'll start with you. Why, um, why have long short at all? And also like, what is, you know, what does shorting a stock mean? Sure. Yeah. So I'll start with the first question of, of why long short and then go into shorting a stock. 
So the Brown Investment Group has always had this dual mandate since our founding, returns and education. And we believe that the LS fund strategy provides us the ability to sort of expand on both of those dual missions. So on the education front, we get to learn a whole bunch of new stuff. So what is shorting? How long short equity works? Calculating risks, uh, exposure, and just delving into much more complex strategies than we could with just the core fund that Big has, which is the traditional long only fund that we've had since our founding in, I believe, 2002. It also introduces us to the concept of hedging, right, which allows us as a fund to diversify against risks such as, for example, market risks. Um, oftentimes, and we'll, we'll go into more details later, but you can pair a long position with a short position in the same sector or a related sector, which means that your portfolio is going to be a little bit less affected by sector-wide events and just allows you to bet more on individual equities relative to their sectors as opposed to the sector as a whole. And that's a really cool concept. It's an extra tool that we can use to uh, just both expand, again, education, but also start thinking about those tools to generate returns. Yeah, maybe maybe you could give us an example of uh, a particular pairing. I don't know if you guys have already started investing, but one you've, you've already done or are excited sure. to do. Um, yeah, just to give a specific example. So I can do a quick primer on shorting, and then Ian, you can go into what we've actually done, perhaps. But basically, shorting is a way to bet that a stock is going to decline in price. And so functionally, what you do is you borrow a certain amount of shares from a broker, commonly perhaps 100 shares, and then you immediately go back to the market, sell those shares and pocket the cash. Um, as the trader, you're basically betting that the price of the stock is going to decline before you have to return those shares that you borrowed. Eventually, you do have to buy back the shares of the stock on the market and return them to the, the rightful owner, the, the broker. And ideally, if the price of the stock has declined, you're going to be able to buy back the stock at a lower price than you sold it for and then pocket the difference between the amount of your initial sale and the cash that you used to buy back the shares. Now, the other side of the coin, coin is that your downside is unlimited because a stock in theory can climb to infinity um, and then good luck covering that short. And so when you're, when you're shorting a stock, let's, let's talk about the mechanics of types of stocks that might be particularly compelling or, or uncompelling. Like if you're comparing, you know, like a, you know, a very liquid stock against sort of an illiquid stock or a larger company that pays a dividend against an unprofitable company, are there any kind of shorting specific considerations that, you know, matter or is it kind of mostly all else equal uh, when thinking about, you know, shorting a name. Yeah, I'm, that's something we specifically outlined in our investment management agreement. So we are only permitted, and this is Ben and I's our, our own research and putting this together, but um, we looked at trading volume, market cap, short interest, um, hold time. All of these variables are looked at with a lot of scrutiny in determining whether we can short a given equity or not. Um, the reason I think I, I personally think um, that many universities fail to have a long short strategy within their student run portfolios is because of this. Exactly. The risk is, is infinite. And so um, we're lucky to have endowment officers that have a lot of trust in us, but at the same time, this is a very risky proposition for us as students. And so 
in turn, we've chosen to, um, like you said, short only highly liquid assets, um, lots of trading volume, and typically mid to, to large cap stocks. Do you plan or do you, are you able to do any shorting without a paired long investment against that short? Yes. I think this gets into all sorts of interesting topics. And I think one that might not be obvious to people is that risk that Brown's endowment is taking because it would be extraordinarily unlikely, but technically <laughs> you have the power now to bankrupt Brown University. <laughs> and so <Sure. laughs> what I am fascinated by is the mechanics of, you know, convincing, you know, the university endowment that, you know, that this is going to be a good strategy. Like I, I imagine like getting any amount of capital from the endowment as a student is tough. Like even if you're long only, it's tough. Um, and even if you're trying to do something like raise like, you know, an ESG centric fund or something that has some screen that isn't everything, it's tough. And so I am super excited to, to dive into the types of conversations you had with the university to, to make this a reality. Sure. Yeah. So um, it's, a, it's a long and, and pretty funny story. I think um, for me, at least where it really began was August of uh, July or August of 2022. I was doing my sophomore internship at this real estate PE shop. Um, and at the time, my boss, the, the head of the platform was the former president of Black Diamond. So he ran the student run long short fund at Harvard. Um, the difference between that fund and ours is that that fund, the Black Diamond Fund is, is all student money. So none of the money is endorsed or even from Harvard. Um, Harvard technically is not even affiliated with it, even though it's all Harvard students. So I had that idea of bringing that to Brown. Um, so I called up Ben and several other people within the investment group um, and thought, well, what if we did the same thing? I, I was really interested in, in software and software enabled companies. So I thought, Maybe that's a cool angle. Um, and later, I guess this was August, like last week of August, I ended up getting an email um, from the chief investment officer of the Brown Endowment asking myself and Ben to come in for a meeting. Um, it was not clear what the meeting was for. Uh, we were quite frankly, you know, confused but intrigued. Um, we came in for the meeting and we learned that Stephen Cohen is looking to donate $100,000 to one of the investment groups at Brown. Um, and Ben and I being the incoming co-presidents, we were the ones to take that meeting. Amazing. And so, so Brown sort of came, so, so they were giving it to one of the investment strategies. And obviously Steve, Steve Cohen, for folks who don't know, former hedge fund manager, now owner of the Mets, um, someone who might be a sympathetic party to something involving shorting perhaps. Um, how so? Do you do you have any insight into how Brown got comfortable, you know, giving themselves this exposure? Is there or is there any is there any like contractual oddities that that you had to work through? Part of the the pitch was selling the the endowment and the the leadership there that we were competent students, but at the end of the day, we are students, and so. Um, we don't. We we need um, we need risk guidelines in place for future membership, future leadership within within big to ensure that a margin call doesn't happen or any sort of um, anything that that wouldn't necessarily look good for for the university. 
So um, we have a team of advisors, one of which being um, Brad Gibbs. He is one of the finance professors at Brown. Um, we have a, an individual, Gene Hornstein from Point72, um, and then several people from the Brown Endowment. And these are all these are all people who work in finance, who understand how this stuff works, and they observe and can see everything what we are doing. Um, we also have a lot of technical um, guidelines and risk guidelines in place to ensure that a margin call doesn't occur. Um, that being said, you know, like you mentioned earlier, anything is possible, but we have a lot of things in place that ensure that um, or that restrict the ability for a margin call to happen. So like I said before, lots of liquidity in the stocks that we're shorting, um, lots of um, lots of volume, uh, mid to large cap companies. We're really not shorting penny stocks or pink sheets. Um, and um, hold time is another thing that we are, are very cognizant of. We don't want to have a sh an open short for a year. That's a bad idea. Um, and so in turn, we make sure that the, our portfolio managers are constantly looking at the price of the of the security that we're shorting to ensure that it doesn't go up by a certain amount and we end up getting margin called. Let's let's talk about each of those concepts. I think for folks who sort of can give a one sentence definition of what a hedge fund is, but might not understand why each of those things matter. So first, um, do you mind, mind defining what a margin call is and why that might be a bad thing? Yeah, I, I can quickly take that in. So a margin call is is basically happens when the amount of equity that an investor has in their account falls below a, a minimum required required amount that's established by the broker. So margin is a tool that investors use to basically oftentimes in, increase the amount of, of leverage that they have and uh, basically increase the amount of money that they can invest to generate potential returns. Um, and so a, a margin account will have usually a combination of securities that you buy as an investor with your own money and then money that you borrow from the broker. And usually when you hit a certain percentage of uh, borrowed assets, the broker will demand that you sort of increase the amount of equity or the amount of your own cash that you put into the account to make sure that you're going to be able to cover all of those borrowed funds um, if need be. So it's, it's that demand for you to bring in additional assets or we're going to have to basically shut down your account eventually. And it's a big concern when it comes to shorting because with shorting, as we said before, your losses are potentially unlimited. You know, they can, they yeah. can go to infinity, which means that if say you, you enter a, a short position and the price of the stock increases enough such that, you know, you're, you're a, a significant percentage in the hole there, the broker is going to ask for you to deposit more cash into the account. And yeah. that's what a margin call is. And, and so V1 of this, right, is like, let's say, because what I might say is like, hey, like I can just get cash by shorting a stock, right? So V1 is I have $0 in my bank account and I decide to go short Apple stock. And all of a sudden I have a liability that's at some point I have to buy back this stock, but I got a bunch of money. And that seems like good. Maybe I should do a lot of that. But what you're saying on the margin call side is for someone to take the other side of that bet with me or for a brokerage to allow me exactly. to make that bet through them, they would say something like, 
yeah, sure, like, that's fine. But, like, I need to know that some bad thing could happen and you need to have money in the bank. Exactly. But you'll be able to but, cover it. But going a step deeper, they don't require 100% collateral, right? So if right. I am shorting, like, let's say Apple stock trades at 175 bucks, and I say, I would like to short one share, please. And somebody says, okay, here's your $175. How would I think about, like, the equity cushion that I would need to put up to be able to have a brokerage allow me to do that short. Let's say I want to short a stock that's trading at whatever, like what are some of the factors that might determine the amount of equity cushion somebody would require? Oh, and this sure. is so like basically like a tee up to talking about like liquidity. Um, you know, I don't know, like if they pay like, and just like, all of the factors that go into that is kind of part one of that question. And then part two is like give listeners a sense of the order of magnitude or like to short a stock at 175. Ben, do you remember the, um, the short interest in the IMA? There might be an interesting detail to add. Yeah. In the IMA, I don't, we can, we can check, but I, what I do know is that I think if you're just a standard investor, uh, the standard margin requirement would be a hundred, 50%. So you'd have to come up with half of the proceeds that you would get from selling um, the stock when you first short it, basically. Um, so it. if you want to so, sell... So 150%, like the, the way I could think about that is if I want to short a stock that's trading at, you know, whatever, $200 a share, mm -hmm. I would need $300 of cash, but $200 of that could be contributed from the proceeds of my short. Yep. So I put up $100 of my own money to short something at 200. Now on my balance sheet, my personal balance sheet, I have $300 of cash on the asset side and a liability that will fluctuate over time could become infinity. Um, but if we're right, it will go to zero and we'll, we'll pocket the difference. Exactly. Awesome. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe if you guys could talk a little bit more about, you know, like you mentioned that kind of 50% is like standard investor sort of ballpark, but we also started talking about the types of stocks that you could short. So there's some, you know, there's some variability there. There are some other considerations. So like, you know, what, what makes a stock, like, let's take two different companies and you don't believe in either of them. Um, you know, like for one reason or another, you're, you're very bearish on them both. What are some characteristics that might make one a better candidate for a short than the other? Yeah, sure. So I think something that I have I've heard and have been taught myself is a good company doesn't mean a good stock and vice versa. Yeah. And so there are a lot of instances that we've seen where we have a really, really strong company, um, strong free cash flow margins, strong growth, et cetera, strong sector, but the stock as a whole is overvalued. So maybe... Um, you know, high thousand level view, it's trading at 500 times earnings, right? Most people, I mean, sector specific, but most people would say that's probably overvalued for what it is. Um, and so to provide an example, and so that's, that's one example, I'd say another might be um, hype, uh, to put it in, in a very simple way. Sometimes a stock has hype behind it. Um, Tesla in like 2020, 2021, Tesla was, was, was ripping for some reason, and it was largely through Twitter and online stuff and social media. Um, does that mean that Tesla as, as a company is better? 
not necessarily. Maybe it could be indicative of that, but um, it's not a one-to-one correlation. So um, I'm happy to provide an example of of a, a pair trade that we that we did um, that sort of exploits that. I'd love that. Sure. So um, I'd say this was our our first our first trade. Um, it was a pair trade for um, Novo Nordisk, and um, we hedged that using um, a biotech ETF. So in this was um, May of 2020 or 2023. This was last year. Um, and the saw the, which side which side are you on for Novo? Are you long or you're short Novo? We are we are short Novo long the ETF. You're short long the ETF. Yeah. Um, yeah. And quickly um, before before we dive too much into the details, um, just define why why pairing at all, like why that matters and how that gets to the crux of what a hedge fund does. Sure. So a a short here against Novo um, has you know if, assuming we're we're buying and selling at the same time, it has infinite downside, as Ben mentioned before. And so having this long position in this biotech ETF allows us to isolate Novo as a specific equity, as a, as a company, um, rather than um, shorting this company and having our, our market risk infinite. So in turn, the trade together, long the ETF, short Novo, allows us to strictly isolate Novo as a, as a company. Yeah, you're, you're narrowing the, uh, the possibilities of you know, something happening that's outside of your control. So your bet is against Novo specifically, not against pharma broadly. And so you can imagine some tax, you know, legislation or, or something happening that, you know, or Novo is also like not even a US based company. So you could imagine some event happening that affects all of pharma or, you know, you know, name your event that might be outside of the scope of your thesis. And you're trying to narrow your exposure to the thesis. Um, but it's not perfect, right? Which is kind of the other fun thing is, you know, with Novo, right? They, I think Novo, I think, you know, as a Danish company, it's sort of interesting because their stock is denominated, I think in Danish Krona. So there's like some currency risk. However, even global pharmaceutical companies have lots of end customer exposure to the U S market. And so even though their stock is trading in Danish Krona, their actual business is largely generating returns in dollars. So mm-hmm. um, I, I, I say this just to emphasize, man, there's a lot of stuff in the world and no hedge is a perfect hedge. But conceptually, that's kind of the idea, right? Is like, what is the pairing to this that mitigates the the maximal amount of risk that is separate from the thing you're betting against? Exactly. And so that's why, um, like you said, uh, there's no perfect hedge here. We saw that a biotech ETF would be a strong, a suitable hedge. But again, there's always some type of risk in this case, you know, foreign exchange or or currency risk that we couldn't necessarily directly account for. Um, But in our play, what we what we noticed, at least in April of last year, was this gigantic hype around Ozempic. Today, everyone knows Ozempic. It's uh, no, it doesn't even need explaining. But at the time, we saw this this hype. We saw that that celebrities and it was on so, uh, social media. We saw this, just generally speaking, this hype around this drug. Um, and in turn, the Novo stock um, continued to rally. And so we needed to figure out a way to quantify this quote unquote hype. 
So we used Google Trends as a proxy for, for hype. And we saw that the Novo stock was highly correlated with Google Trends searches for Ozempic. So um, at this point, we realized, okay, we're on to something. Um, we did a DCF and comps and determined that, yes, Novo was, was overvalued um, intrinsically and, and on a relative basis. And so um, we therefore determined that Novo, as it increased in price, it was directly correlated and traded off of the hype around Ozempic. Um, so at this point, we needed to, th this was our, this was like the, the crux of our, of our trade, but we needed some sort of catalyst. So at this point, we noticed that Eli Lilly, a competitor to Novo, was making a more potent competitor to Ozempic. Um, at the time, this didn't have a name. Today, we know it as Mangiorno. Um, and we figured that if Eli confirmed this release, Novo would decorrelate from Google Trends and therefore the Novo stock would dip. So um, we, short we shorted Novo on the same day as Eli's earnings, um, also going along the biotech ETF as a hedge at the same time. And so in turn, we were correct. Eli did come out with a competitor. Uh, Novo's stock fell, and we covered the short weeks later um, with, a, with a, a very successful trade in our book. This is, this is another, um, I think, interesting feature of shorting a stock. You've, you've mentioned this twice now, which is the time horizon of like not wanting to have one short position like hanging out there for a couple of years. Could you talk about some reasons why that might be a bad idea or, or poor strategy? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, there is a fee to short. So in your, you know, investments 101 class, the cost of going long and the cost of going short is assumed to be zero. But in practice, there is a cost of shorting or to borrow. Um, your broker is going to charge a fee to borrow a stock for every given period of time. And this is something that um, I found, I didn't realize how high the fees were to short uh, when, we, when we first started doing this. So um, that's the first, the first primary reason. Can you, um, can you give us so, order of magnitude on those fees? I think it was, Ben, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was a few basis points a day. It was calculated on a per day basis um, of the value of the uh, outstanding stock. That's the fee component, but also from a, um, a risk component, the longer a short is in the open, um, the less you're, you, you can identify the, the thesis on a, on a more specific basis. If you're looking for some sort of catalyst to play out, for us, it was... Eli Lilly's um, earnings report. Um, you know, if you're just shorting in general, you're you're saying the stock is generally going to go down. That's a high risk proposition that I don't think most managers are willing to take. Yeah, um, and and one other thing I'll add to that is if you're shorting a dividend paying stock, mm. you are on the hook for reimbursing whoever's on the other side of the short for the dividends as well. And then the third thing, of course, is like, you know, people love ETFs because in the very long run, you know, stocks in aggregate tend to go up. And so if you are on Absolutely. the, you know, the short side of the house, then you are betting <laughs> against history. And so, you know, the more event driven the thing is, or the more specific or isolated your thesis is, the higher the likelihood of success. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a very, very important point. Short term drops in stock price are much easier to predict using the, the kinds of tools of analysis that we have than long-term declines, which like you say, are, are uncommon considering that 
the uh, in the long run, the market has has tended to appreciate. Um, what so one one other question I have I have on this is how do you think about contextualizing returns? Um, right. So if you were doing kind of a long only strategy, I you know someone might guess like oh hey like market always goes up. I'm long only. I have exposure to that rising tide that lifts all shifts, all ships. But if I'm shorting, I've narrowed my risk parameters. Does that also narrow, narrow my expected return parameters or like what, what's a way to, to think about that? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. I, I think in some sense, you, you know, using shorts to hedge is one possible tool. And in that way, you know, it, it could theoretically slightly decrease your expected portfolio return and um, in return for a sort of less deviation and less risk in your portfolio. But on the other hand, if you're going out and shorting stocks, that also provides you an opportunity to basically use leverage to generate returns in excess of what a long only fund might generate. And, and yeah. That's again, because of that concept of you're actually, you're borrowing the shares and inherently you're taking a lot more risk. And when you take a lot more risk, that tends to come with higher potential expected returns. So in the Novo Nordisk example, we only held, we only held the short for, I think it was several weeks, not much longer than a month. And our annualized return for that period after we'd covered the short was about 50%, which is obviously much higher than you'll get in any typical year holding on to the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or, or any other ETFs or, or even, you know, individual stocks for that matter. Um, it, it's, it's so fascinating because like, so, so, I'll, and I'm curious what you guys think, because I have, I've worked professionally in investment banking and private equity, but never in the hedge fund industry. And so one mental model I have for comparing not only returns, but risk adjusted returns is I think of, you know, when I'm, when I'm shorting a stock, exactly as you're saying, I'm like shorting on margin. So I can have a larger exposure than the actual cash that I put up. So that would increase my risk. So it should increase the return I'm underwriting to. On the other hand, if I'm doing a long short pairing, then I've, basically I'm taking less market risk, right? And so like one mental model I have for thinking about this is I'm trading, I'm like narrowing my risk in terms of scope, but I'm relevering on, you know, like financial engineering basically. So it might be the same level of risk in aggregate, but I'm like really betting very concentrate in a very concentrated way on the particular thing that I care about. So when I'm right, I should be really right and I should really profit. And when I'm wrong, it is, you know, even more devastating than than it might otherwise be. Totally. That's a wonderful explanation. Um, Thinking broadly about portfolio construction, like how, how many, you know, pairs or how many, like how many, how many like names do you have in your portfolio or like, or do you expect to? Yeah, so our long-only portfolio, I believe, has between 12 and 15 securities right now. Um, the long-short fluctuates. I, I believe we're only holding a few at this point. 
Um, we've only been able to trade since uh, April of, uh, of last year. We, we try to keep things relatively clean and not hold on to any position for too long. Um, I remember when Ben and I first started uh, as portfolio managers our sophomore year, we had maybe 30 names in the book for our long only yeah. fund. And a lot of them, we couldn't really explain as to why they were there, what the thesis was, um, names we didn't recognize, pink sheets, just random stuff that we, you know, we were like, I, we don't, we couldn't explain as to why they were there in the first place. And um, I mean, man, I, I have so many more questions. This has been a great conversation, but I know, I know we're, we're wrapping up. So maybe, maybe I'll ask to shift to, you know, let's say someone out there is listening and they work or they, they, you know, sophomore, junior at a university that does not have a long, short strategy. What advice would you give that person about, you know, setting out kind of launching a strategy like this? In terms of, of, um, advice for just generally stock picking and you know if you have a long only fund at school that you're a part of that's that's wonderful but what we've really learned from this whole experience is the ability to generate robust theses is critical not just for say when you're shorting a stock but also for when you go long a stock and that's really also benefited the pitches we've gotten for the core long only fund um the emphasis that we've put on that Right. And, and so we found that it's important to emphasize, and especially a lot of times you have people come in that are first years in, in school, or I know this is sort of what I thought in high school and be like, I really like this company, you know, say it's Apple and I've got an iPhone, I've got an Apple watch, I've got a Mac, like this must be a great company. Right. But as Ian was saying earlier, uh, great companies can be overpriced. And so it's important when you're coming up with a thesis is, that the thesis be not just, I love this company, but that you find a true catalyst, that you find a true, like the market is missing some variable. And that's why you think the stock is going to appreciate or depreciate. And I think for us, adding in more education on building out short theses has really helped sort of hammer that concept in to our younger members as well. And it's benefited our, not just the short, the long short fund, but again, the core fund as well. Yeah. So just to add a little bit of color to that, um, I think that's a really good point of advice for students. Um, I think a, another thing that you touched on is the, the research process for a long position or a short position really shouldn't be different. You can intrinsically value a stock. You can value a stock on a relative basis. But at the end of the day, you're looking for some type of thesis and how that plays out in the market. And we see going long and going short as tools to uh, exploit that that sort of uh, situation in the market. But that doesn't necessarily change your research process. If you find that Apple is undervalued, great. Maybe you can buy you can buy the stock. But if you think it's overvalued and you have a catalyst, great. Maybe you know you can't employ that in your student run fund. But the research process is exactly the same, and I think it's a great educational tool regardless. One, one last question before we, we take off is, um, you know, we've talked about advice for, you know, someone trying to do a similar strategy to you guys, but I just want to, you know, step way back and think about, you know, if you were giving advice to yourself, you know, three years ago as a freshman, no, no experience, no knowledge, um, other than maybe a couple of Robin Hood YOLOs, um, any, any advice you would give to your younger self on, how to build knowledge, how to build experience, 
something you can do when breaking into this industry feels, you know, potentially overwhelming? Probably best, best thing that any, you know, first year in college can do is just go get involved in the organizations that are on your campus. Typically every campus has some sort of finance related organization. For us, it was the Brown Investment Group. For me personally, it was also Van Winkle Ventures, the student run venture capital fund at Brown, but just getting, putting yourself out there, getting involved, applying to these organizations and, and showing true interest goes a really long way. And just getting yourself into that environment really helps you start thinking about the next steps from there. If you want to start thinking about recruiting for investment banking or even other stuff like hedge funds and private equity. And the other big piece of advice there is just start networking early. And you don't even have to think about it as, as networking. There's a lot of people at your school who have started to go through these processes, right? If you're a first year or second year, there's juniors and seniors at your school who have gone through these processes. So ask them to you know, meet up, get coffee, grab lunch, and just uh, weave into the conversation some, some questions about what they found they've really liked. And then the other sort of networking piece of advice that I would give is leverage your school's network. There's a lot of alumni that enjoy hearing from, from students. You know, they, they like to reminisce about the, the good old days in college and they, they love speaking to students. And I found alumni to be very, very helpful in, in my journey. Just network, ask them about their job. Typically they'll be honest, um, but you can read between the lines anyway. Um, so just putting yourself out there for me is, is the number one thing. I think that's all phenomenal advice. I think the one thing I want to add is to not be intimidated by your student run investment group. Um, I think most schools at this point have one. And at least for myself, hearing a lot of the jargon, hearing the language that people use can be very intimidating if it's your first time in getting involved in finance. Um, we used a lot of that jargon today. And I think it's important to, if you are running a club or if you're thinking of joining a club to step back and realize, okay, maybe the people running the club aren't used to explaining some of these terms, but at the end of the day, I personally think these, these ideas are explainable. They aren't too complicated. And if you take the time out of your day to Google what shorting means, what a margin call is, what short interest is, et cetera, you can pretty quickly learn the language and be very comfortable in um, listening to other people and, um, you know, listening to other podcasts and obviously using breaking into finance as a resource as well for this kind of stuff and getting used to the jargon. Um, but I, I'd say do not be intimidated by the jargon at first. It could be a lot, but it just takes time. And I personally was 100% in that boat my freshman year and within a year and a half, I felt very comfortable. Awesome. Awesome. Well, first off, huge congratulations, sorry, huge congratulations to you guys on, um, you know, getting this fund over the finish line. It, I think it's something you should really be proud of. It, it take a, takes a lot of initiative, a lot of leadership. So huge, huge congrats there. Huge congrats on the upcoming graduation and, uh, and launching your careers. Sounds like it's, it's really promising. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having thank us. You, Greg. That does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember to check out our website, breakingintofinancepodcast.com, where you can submit questions, join our Substack to stay up to date on new content releases, and much, much more. We'll see you next time.